Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal, where we're proud to support so many of the inspiring leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Jorge Alorza, mayor of Providence, Rhode Island. We talked about how COVID has generated the political will to address longstanding inequities in our systems, how he hopes to remain a national leader on public safety by creating a prevention-first model and how he's addressing racial injustice through a truth, reconciliation, and reparations process. We also talked about what makes city government so special, how his parents' sacrifice inspired him to turn his life around after high school, and how a personal tragedy redirected him from a career on Wall Street to a path of public service. Mayor Lorza, welcome to an honorable profession. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, there's so much going on. So I really would just love to to dive right in. I wanted to start by talking to you about the fact that, you know, when we look back over the last 15 months, you and your fellow mayors have really been on the front lines of so much with the pandemic, with the resulting economic hardship so many are facing. In fact, the Hill had a piece today that said an exhausting year takes a toll on our our nation's mayors. And I know for you personally, you you personally were affected with COVID, by by COVID, having some of your family members contract COVID. And I know that your mother spent some time in the hospital even. So I just want to start with how is she, how are you, how is your city as you begin to open things back up? Well, thank you for asking. My mom is doing well. You know, this is back in March, you know, really early on when there was just so much confusion and so much uncertainty around it that my mother got sick. And so, you know, we, you know, we sent her to the hospital. We had to bring, get a rescue to come pick her up. And uh, we didn't know that we weren't going to see her for a long time. She spent a couple of weeks on a ventilator and then rehab has been, you know, really challenging since then. It's been over a year. Uh, but thankfully, she's she's still she's still here with us. So I was navigating, trying to manage that personal situation while at the same time I'm trying to make sense of this pandemic and how to deal with it, you know, how to respond to it at the city level. So it's been a really really trying, difficult 15 months. Uh, but you know, on the grand scheme of things, when I think back in terms of where we were and where we are now, you know, you think back maybe 10, 11 months ago, you know, the pandemic was at its height. The recession seemed to have no bottom. And for many of us, our streets were literally on fire. So when you think about you know, how things were back then to where we are right now, to be honest with you, I'm counting, I'm counting my blessings and feel really positive about where we are and where we're going. Good, good. Well, and tell me a little bit about that in terms of where you're going. What do you feel like are some of the things that your residents most need uh, still, families, businesses in general, when, as you're thinking about recovering from the recession and from um, getting through this this public health crisis? 
Well, we all know that the, the pandemic affected all of us, but it didn't affect the, all of us the same way. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, it reminded us of how fragile a, um, a, an, an infrastructure we have to support our families. You know, the way that I saw, you know, lines around the block at soup kitchens, you know, the way that we've seen issues of housing insecurity, homelessness, and people living, living in encampments, how that has continued to grow, and a myriad of different issues throughout, throughout our city. It's really, you know, it's really reminded us how much work we have left to do there. And I'll tell you on the, on the policy side of things, you know, if there's one positive that has come out of this is that, you know, the, the realm of what's possible, right? This, um, uh, this window of opportunity for, you know, what there's the political will and political appetite to take on has been blown wide open. And so things that perhaps were anathema or third rail issues just a year and a half ago, now more and more they're moving to mainstream conversations. And here in Providence, we want to lead the curve. You know, we want to make sure that we're ahead of, you know, where, you know, that, that we're as forward thinking as any other city in the country. So it's an exciting opportunity for us as we consider things such as a guaranteed income pilot, as we look at a comprehensive way to deal with housing insecurity, as we look at racial reparations and healing many of the racial wounds of the past, you know, looking at deep police reform, all of those things, these are exciting opportunities to, you know, either change existing institutions or create new institutions to replace uh, institutions that haven't worked in the past. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And I know that working with your fellow elected officials around the country with New Deal, it's an opportunity and it's a responsibility, I feel like, you know, it's this is uh, COVID laid bare so many of these inequities that we knew existed, but, you know, they were just the spotlight was shown on them. And, and I do feel like with this, you know, particularly with help from the federal government with some of this uh, American Rescue Plan dollars, and hopefully infrastructure dollars, which we'll talk about, you know, we're going to make in significant investments. So, you know, making sure that to, to your point that we're doing that in a way that builds America back better, that works for more people is really, I think, the fundamental challenge and imperative of our, frankly, of our lifetime. So I'm happy to have you on the forefront of that in Providence. And I'd love to dive dive into a little bit of a couple of those issues you mentioned in greater detail. Housing, to start with, maybe you, you this is something that, you know, is not new to you. You've spent a bunch of your career working in the housing space, so that's why I wanted to start with it. And it's something that I hear all around the country all the time, that this lack of affordable, accessible housing is a massive challenge for people. Luckily, the eviction moratorium was, was extended a little bit, but, it, you know, it, it's not, we're not out of the woods by any stretch. So, and, and I know in March, you released uh, a 10-year anti-displacement and comprehensive housing strategy. So tell us a little bit about that. What are you hoping to accomplish over the next 10 years in, in, in Providence? Yes. So, so we're looking at it from two perspectives. The first is, yes, we are seeing more and more involuntary displacement of our residents. And that's a concern. And the other side of it uh, also is that you know, we, we still have neighborhoods that have experienced decades of disinvestment. And as we build them back up, we want folks to know and to feel that now, they don't have to move to a, to a different neighborhood to live in a better neighborhood. And so we're also looking at community re- revitalization efforts. And so, you know, there is no magic wand. There, frankly, as we've done our research, there is not a single city in the country that has cracked the code on how to prevent involuntary displacement. And so, so there's no, it's just one easy solution, but it's a little bit of everything that you see. Um, well, everything that you've um, that that we have seen. 
So the approach that we're taking is uh, is a comprehensive one. So we want to build more housing at every single range. And we also want to make as many units available to our existing community as possible. So that means things like looking at our zoning zoning ordinance, allowing for greater density, but also being really smart. So we know that one of the drivers of, of housing uh, unaffordability is that we have a lot of uh, universities, uh, colleges and universities here in our city. Now that's great, but if they're not housing their students on campus, then those students are living off campus and taking units that would otherwise be occupied by a family. And so we're looking at the role of colleges and universities. We're looking at the role of Airbnb, how many units that's taking off the, off the market. And we're looking at, uh, we just passed source of income as a protected class uh, so that people can't be discriminated against simply because they're using, they're receiving a housing voucher or other gov- government benefits. So it really takes a comprehensive approach. And I think that for any city that wants to address uh, the issue of housing insecurity seriously, uh, what you need to start off by doing is to do this comprehensive report and, uh, so that you can set your, set your city on a long-term path to achieve those goals. Um, because it's really insightful when you, when you step back and, and take this approach. You, know, you, you may have a pretty good sense of how your population is going to grow over the next 10 years, but do you have a really solid sense of how it is that housing opportunities are going to grow over the next 10 years? And if there's a mismatch, well, then that forces you to have a very realistic conversation about what it's going to take on the policy side to increase production so that it matches the, the growing demand. And so I think that this is you know, absolutely vital for any city that's looking to, ta- uh, to tackle this. You need a comprehensive long-term plan. Yeah. Uh, another place where you were looking at a comprehensive plan was uh, even before the pandemic was infrastructure. I know that you were talking a lot about that being your top priority and trying to make a a real transformational investment in Providence. Fast forward 15 months, now we're talking about that at the national level. There may be some significant federal dollars coming to cities, hopefully, to help with some of that. Where do you see the greatest need in Providence for those kinds of investments uh, in infrastructure? Yeah, well, I, I want to begin by saying I can't miss the opportunity to say that, boy, does it feel good that uh, the federal government is actually doing stuff again. Yeah, please say that. Say I've that been mayor <laughs> I've been mayor now for six and a half years, and uh, you know, for, for the past four years, it's felt as though not just opposition, but uh, an opponent in the federal government. And uh, to know that you actually have a partner in governing in our federal government is great. With that said, as much as I, I'm enthusiastic about the new administration's energetic agenda, uh, I will tell you that not here in Providence and nowhere in the country are mayors holding their breath and waiting for Washington to come to our rescue. So we're hoping that there's an infrastructure bill and we're weighing in so that we can shape it. But at the same time, we have our priorities and we have our needs that we're moving forward on. So over the past several years, while there's been talk of billion, 10 billion, 100 trillion dollar infrastructure package in Washington, it's been all talk. Uh, but at the city level and at the local level, through local bond measures, there's been approvals of hundreds of billions of dollars of this work. So at the local level, mayors have kept, um, you know, kept, uh, kept the inv- investments in infrastructure going. You know, as I, as I look throughout our city, there are two main areas where these infrastructure needs are prioritized. The first is in our school buildings. Unfortunately, as a city, we have, uh, we have uh, disinvested from so many of our school buildings. 
And uh, even just getting our buildings to where they're warm, safe and dry is going to take uh, investments beyond our capacity at this time. So that's certainly one area where we hope there's more investment from the federal government. You know, the the other area I think is uh, is one that's really interesting to, you know, to policymakers and to city builders and uh, for folks who care a great deal about urbanism. So, you know, as you know, as we're building our roads, we're not building our roads in the same way that they were built 30, 40, 50 years ago. And as we're building our roads today, we're, we're integrating the latest principles of sustainability. You know, how do we make sure that we limit stormwater runoff? How do we, you know, make sure that we have, you know, very uh, uh, sustainable product and other features that are added to our, to our street design plans? We're also very interested in slowing down traffic and, in effect, building our cities for people and not for cars. It's a push that we're making here in Providence where we want folks to leave the car at home, either hop on their bicycle, on a scooter, on a bike share program, or just walk around, walk to work. So that's integrating our infrastructure plans with our zoning ordinances that encourage greater livability, more vibrancy, more foot traffic. So, you know, at the same time that we're rebuilding our roads, we want to make sure they have all of these features to be much more in line with the kind of urban living that people are demanding today. And so as long as we have that flexibility uh, from the federal government and it's not prescriptive in terms of how or where it can be used, uh, folks at the local level are going to make the best decisions for their communities, including uh, setting, setting our cities and our metro areas up as you know, leading leading international cities for the next generation. So it's extremely exciting. And I hope that um, not only the federal, federal package passes, um, I hope it gives us the flexibility, but even if it doesn't, we're prepared to do this work regardless. I love that. And you're putting your money where your mouth is. I know you're an avid biker. I think that you ride your bike to uh, to work most days, right? So <laughs> you are uh, you're you're living your 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 vision. I want to turn to something else that we're when we're talking about the and you mentioned this earlier, but when we're thinking about the events over the last year, obviously another one that's been front and center is the renewed conversation around race in America, uh, sparked by the murder of George Floyd and then the protests. One response that you've led in Providence is to reexamine the way that public safety and justice is delivered, particularly in communities of color. And in April this year, you announced a comprehensive review of, of that budget and, and those practices. And it looks like you're thinking about shifting to a prevention first model uh, in Providence. So, so what does that mean? How did that review go? And, and what kind of reforms are you going to be championing going forward? Right. So Providence has, has been a leader in public safety for a long time. And, uh, you know, beginning about 20 years ago, the city went all in on community policing. And so it was a fairly new concept at the time. And, uh, you know, it was poo-pooed, you know, it was, it was um, sometimes outrightly dismissed, uh, but oftentimes it, w- it was resisted uh, by the community. But nonetheless, city leaders, including leadership in the police department, they were all in. And uh, over the past 20 years, look at what we've seen. We've seen record declines in violent crime, property crime, crime across the board. And in fact, we've been able to do this even with fewer police officers than there were back in the 1990s. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's something smart about community policing. And just as Providence was a leader 20 years ago, we're positioning ourselves so that we're, we're going to be leaders for the next 20 years as well. And what that means is diving into a prevention first model. And when I think about what's possible with crime, I think that the best analogy is 
Look at what, look at the amazing success that we've had with fire prevention. Look, a long time ago, you know, there were, there were massive fires on a pretty regular basis. Cities throughout the country, they moved to a prevention first model. So this is where you start seeing fire prevention systems. You see sprinklers, you see alarms, you see uh, housing codes and building codes uh, that, uh, uh, that help uh, mitigate some of the, some of the dangers that, that property owners, homeowners experience. And look at where we are today. The report that we, that we just, um, that we just uh, released showed that less than 2% of all calls that come into the fire department are for actual fires. And so, you know, we've gone from a department that, you know, has been perhaps the best in the world at putting out fires to one that very rarely has to put out a fire. And they've transitioned to, you know, where they do a lot more of EMS and rescue work. Well, that's an amazing success for the fire department. And we think we can do something very similar when it comes to crime. However, we can't continue to put everything on the shoulders of the police department, right? The police department they have their role, they have their specific training, and they are good at certain things. But over the while, we've put more and more on their shoulders simply because we've had no one else to send send to them. Take, for example, mental health crises. If someone's having a, um, a suicidal episode or some kind of mental health crisis, we send a police officer because we have no one else to send. And, you know, God bless them, police officers show up on the scene and, you know, they, they do, you know, the best that they can but they're not trained professionals at this. And what we want to do is we want to provide those trained professionals so that when you call 911, the, um, you know, the answer on the other line will be, is this police, fire, or mental health? And there are options available. This is going to help us do two things. It's going to help us first provide better services to the community in need. And second, it's going to help us, you know, frankly, free up police officer time so that they can dedicate, you know, the most valuable resource they have, their time, to, uh, to the issues that only they can address and uh, building relationships into the community so that in, in the community so that there's more trust uh, between, uh, between them and our police department. So, you know, I think that there, there are smart and intelligent things that we can do. We're taking comprehensive approach to this so that we can continue to be leaders at a national level um, in terms of police reform and uh, uh, the, the way that we respond and serve our community. Yeah, and do you, just to follow up on that, do you feel like there's widespread support for this? I mean, I think it's such a smart strategy, and I know that other cities are looking at other ways to try to get the right people responding to the right situations, as you're saying. Is that a popular, are people on board with that, or do you see that this is going to take some, you know, some explaining to people to get people on board? To be honest with you, my, my experience has been is that um, there's a lot of support for this, and it's an idea that, that kind of sells itself. So you look at both sides of this, you look at both sides of the debate, you know, if it's presented as these are real challenges that police officers aren't equipped to address, then it just makes sense to bring professionals in to, to address them. We've seen a marked increase in the calls for service for mental health crises. And, you know, this is an increase over services that we weren't able to fully provide in the past. So we're just seeing more and more of a need, and I think it sells itself. Um, on the flip side of it, also, uh, this idea that it frees police officers up so that they can do more of the work that only they can do, well, that's also something that's intuitively very like appealing and, and just makes sense to folks. Um, and so you know, we're looking at 
you know, these mental health episodes that perhaps we could take over off of police officers' shoulders. And we're also looking at fender bender traffic accidents where no one is injured. Do we really need someone with a badge and a gun to go and fill out a report? Frankly, a report that serves the benefit of perhaps no one beyond you know, private insurance companies. This is like a subsidy that we're providing for them. Uh, but um, I think private industry is also pretty good at filling in voids and blanks when they need to. I'm sure there's a solution they can come up with. Um, is this the best use of our time on the police side? These are all questions that we're asking. And, you know, the more and more that I dive into it, the more I see that it just makes sense to make these to make these changes. Um, again, not only will it uh, provide more time for officers to do the work that they own, only they can do, but we're also going to provide better services to the community, which is ultimately what this is all about. Yeah, I love that. And I haven't heard anyone uh, make the analogy with the fire department before. So I, I think that I appreciate that, that, that I think people can get their head around that, right? That they know the, how departments have evolved. So I think that's really fantastic. You know, this is one response to what happened uh, this year with George Floyd and, and police, re- police reform, but you've been addressing systemic racism and thinking about ways to lift up members of your community for a long time. You led in 2016, a One Providence initiative to, in response to some rising hate crimes at that time. And more recently in 2020, you've launched a truth and reconciliation and reparations uh, process, as well as created an African-American ambassador group to amplify um, the voices of Black members of your community to engage more diverse voices in the in the policymaking process. So how are some of those issues and and efforts going? Um, And in particular, I I think it's really interesting. I don't know if if our listeners are aware that um, there are a number of cities who are looking at uh, the reparations issue in particular at the city level, and you're on the forefront of of the folks doing that. So um, how is that going? Kind of what's the, what is the the thinking and the process behind how you're going to approach that? Well, it's ongoing work um, and it's really exciting work. You know, I start, I start with the with the understanding that as a country, we've never addressed the racial issue head on. Um, you know, going back to the Constitutional Convention, right? It was the dividing issue. There was a compromise that kind of worked, mostly didn't work. And so we just lived to fight another day. It came up again in 1820 with the Missouri Compromise, came up 35 years later, the Nebraska-Kansas Act. It divided the country, but we have never fully addressed it head on. And look at where it's gotten us. And so, you know, the wounds around uh, racial injustice, they run deep. And if we want to address it, well, then we have to go to the source. We have to go, uh, we have to address it at a systemic level. And that's what led me, along with the African-American ambassador group, to, uh, to jump into and, and, and wade into this topic. So we launched our, our own truth, reconciliation, and reparations process. So it's a three-phase process. Each phase is just as important as the other. Uh, But it starts off with just recording and documenting some fundamental truths about our our community, making sure that this unfortunate legacy of racial injustice and discrimination, that that it be more widely known. You know, these aren't these aren't sort of abstract things that happened somewhere else. They happened right here in our community. And they had impact on families of people that still live in our community, people that we know. So through this truth process, we engaged a, a group of researchers and they produced a 200 page book uh, called A Matter of Truth, where they documented our history in a number of different areas. And so, you know, we want this to become fingertip knowledge for our community. We want this to be integrated into the curriculum in our schools. And we just want people to know the truth. 
this is then going to lead to our reconciliation process. I truly believe that every single human being, we have a moral instinct inside of us. And whenever we're confronted with some form of patent injustice, uh, that instinct is triggered and uh, we want to be part of the solution. We want to, you know, we want to engage and we want to, we want to help fix what's wrong. And so we, we are not the first city in the country. We're not the first place in the world that will go through a reconciliation process. But the idea is to engage as much of the community and as much of the public together to make sure that, you know, there is broad political will to continue this racial justice work long after I'm gone as mayor and, you know, um, long after, you know, the current group of city leaders has transitioned to the next generation. And then from this reconciliation phase, we're launching the reparations phase. And this is, this is part of just doing what's right. You know, as a city, we can't correct for all of the wrongs of the past, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and we shouldn't wade into this space. So uh, we um, will be forming a reparations committee and they'll be making recommendations to me on what form and shape reparations should take. And then it's on me, city leaders and whoever comes next to make good on that. And so that's a commitment that we're making. But more than that, by coordinating with mayors throughout the country, we want to do more than just move our communities forward. We know that we can't, we can't make right all the wrongs of the past. But if we can inspire and encourage other levels of government and other institutions in our community to also jump in and have this and make this reparations conversation a mainstream everyday conversation, well, then at that level, we can begin to more fully address uh, some of the um, some of the injustices of the past. So again, it's about taking a comprehensive approach. It requires a lot of time and a dedication of a great deal of resources. Uh, but on the whole, you know, we're living in a moment right now where it seems as though the forces that are pulling us apart are as strong as they have ever been. And so, how do we be that force that pulls people together? And we see this as an important way to bring our community together. I love that. I love that. Before I move on to asking you a little bit about your own life and journey into this public service and elected office, I was as I was listening to you today and also as I was preparing for this conversation with you, I've really heard a lot of themes in the way you talk about the way you approach being mayor. And I wonder, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name a few and see if this resonates with you and see if I'm getting these right and see if there's others that you might add. I mean, it feels like you know, really thinking holistically about about problems is a big uh, a big um, kind of framework way that you think about things, as well as using data and evidence to make decisions. This, this kind of you know starting with the the truth piece is, is what you were just talking about, and just getting that information first before you're making decisions. As well as and we didn't talk about this, but you also I know put a strong emphasis on customer service that that came through some of your answers. But I know that was something you 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 started with when you became mayor back in 2015 originally. So are, so those are some of the themes. I've kind of heard from you as you about approaching the job of being mayor. Do those sound right to you? And and what else? What else do you think about in terms of your your the framework in which you govern? So so yes, those all definitely seem right. If I may, I'll also say that you know this this is something that's not unique to Providence, and you know there's a there's a there's a phenomenon that's been happening for maybe 10, 20 years in America, where city halls. You know, they're not led by the party boss kind of mayor, right? It's not the political machine that decides who gets into City Hall, who 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 doesn't. Uh, that's a thing of the past. 
really today, mayors, we're, we're city executives. We see ourselves as executives. It's how we, it's how we, it's how we do our job, how we approach every, everything that we do. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go a step further and say that, you know, if you look at the, the elected official landscape throughout the country, city halls are the best run level of government anywhere in our country right now. Um, you know, it's certainly not Washington. And even state, at the state level, you get into this ideological back and forth. But there's something about, about leadership at the mayoral level that just forces you to be practical, uh, solutions-oriented, data-driven. Uh, we're held accountable by our constituents every single day, right? They see me in the supermarket, and they hold me accountable. Uh, we often say that there are three main political parties in the United States. There are Republicans, there are Democrats, and there are mayors. And mayors are just focused on getting stuff done. And we still work together in, in a bi bipartisan way, in a way that bipartisanship almost doesn't exist anymore um, at other levels of government. You do see it here. And so this idea of thinking holistically and bringing a problem-solving lens to what we do, being driven by data and serving our constituents, you know, absolutely, those are all you know, th those are all things that we live by here in Providence. Uh, but I'll tell you that, you know, it's not just Providence. It's the way that mayors operate. Yeah, I love that. And I, I, for the record, I love mayors for the, exactly that reason. <laughs> they're, pro they're problem solvers. And they get stuff done. So let's talk about how you became CEO of, of your city and got. Uh, so to start with, uh, I'm curious. So your, your parents uh, immigrated from Guatemala. Why Providence? What, what brought them to America and why Providence in particular? So the American dream brought them to America and uh, what brought them to Providence was jobs. So, you know, my parents' story is the, it's the classic yet improbable immigrant story. So they came to Providence, they worked in the factories, there were good paying jobs, uh, good paying jobs for people who didn't have a formal education. So, you know, my mother worked second shift her entire life. And uh, to date, I mean, even today as we speak, she's probably leaving for work um, sometime very, very soon. Um, my father worked in a factory. You know, we're big in the jewelry trade here in here in Providence, and my dad dedicated his life to that. And uh, you know, they lived in a world, and they came to the city at a time when it provided opportunities for uh, people from throughout the world. And uh, not only here in Providence, but I'm really concerned about you know those you know those opportunities disappearing. You know, there are people that are working really hard, doing a gig economy job, a side hustle here, maybe working full time somewhere else. And they're still falling behind. That's not who we are. Uh, that's, you know, that strikes at, at the core of what this American dream is all about. You shouldn't be working around the clock and still falling behind. Um, you know, I've heard it said provocative, provocatively and also sadly that if you're looking for the American dream nowadays, you know, you're better, you're, you're better off going to Canada. Uh, that can't be who we are. That can't be what we're about. So, so much of what motivates me is you know, seeing myself and young people throughout the city and seeing my parents' experience and so much of what I see happening out there. You know, we're filled with people who are chasing that American dream, just want what's best for them and their kids. And I want to provide those opportunities so that they can, you know, perhaps one day their son is mayor and they can feel just as proud of him as my parents are of me. 
I love that. I love that. Well, and you had an interesting journey to be to be mayor because, as I, I've heard you say, um, you weren't particularly a great student. That wasn't your thing when you were younger. But eventually, you graduated top of your class from the university in the accounting, and then obviously went to work on not obviously you went to work on Wall Street for a while there. So, what for you? What 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 turned things around in your in those parts of your life there? So again, it's deeply personal. There were two moments in my life that really uh, stand out. The first is my high school graduation. So I was a dunce in high school. Yeah, I started veering off in the wrong direction. And I found, out I, I found out I was graduating just a couple of days before graduation day. So I did graduate, but I had gotten rejected from every college and university that I applied to. So here I am, all of my friends are celebrating, they're going off to college and their best days are ahead of them. Whereas I'm sitting there trying to figure out Am I going to work in the same factory as my dad or am I going to get my act together? And uh, on top of that, I'm thinking to myself, you know, my parents had sacrificed so much so that I could be there and I'm squandering these opportunities. And I resolved to myself at a very, you know, in a, in, in a very sort of deeply personal way and that I would do everything I could so that all my parents' efforts would not be in vain and uh, so that I could show the world and myself what you know, what I was capable of. So I started off at community college. For the first time in my life, I worked hard. I worked hard. I did well. Then I got accepted into the state university, this program that got inner city kids into college. So again, worked hard, did well, graduated first in my class as an accountant. And then I went off to New York. You know, I thought I was going to live, you know, the fast paced life in, in Manhattan and make a lot of money and live that kind of success. But then I got a call one night from, uh, from my father. Um, in the middle of the night, the phone rang. And he told me that one of my best friends from my old neighborhood had just been murdered. So my friend Jose is someone I had, I had always looked up to. And uh, I just cried for Jose. And uh, that night I resolved that I was going to come back to Providence. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I know I wanted to serve my community. And that's what set me down this path of uh, being a public servant and uh, being committed to public interest. And so, you know, I've been an attorney, I've been a law professor, I've been a judge, and now I'm mayor. I don't see any of those as a change in career. I just see that as different shapes that my public service has taken. And, uh, you know, regardless of where I go from here, I know that I'm still going to continue to do this work in the community. It'll simply take different shapes into the future. Yeah, I'm so sorry for your loss. And um, and it is an amazing story. You have done so much good work in all the stripes of the ways you've said said in terms of your nonprofit and teaching, your so many different areas. I, I do want to ask you, what, what was it that prompted you to run for office? That is, that was a, a different direction, a step. What 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 made you wake up and decide, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna run for mayor? Yeah, well, it took a lot, to be honest with you, because I grew up in Providence. And if you're my age, you grew up in Providence in the in the nineties. Politics probably lives a distaste in your mouth. So we had a mayor, this larger than life figure named Buddy Cianci, who was corrupt. He was a criminal in every way. He served two separate stretches. Both of them ended with him uh, resigning and, and going off to jail. And so growing up, I, I thought that, you know, politics was dirty. Politicians were corrupt. And I wanted nothing to do with it. And, and it was like that, you know, long into adulthood. But then what happened for me was that I became a housing court judge and through the housing court, this is in the midst of the foreclosure crisis. I brought in the biggest banks in the world and I held them accountable for the abandoned properties that were 
you know, uh, riddled throughout the city and had just been wasting away for years. And I saw the impact that you can have, the change that you can make in a community in, in, these, in these public roles. And I've always been very interested. I've always been passionate about making a difference in the community. And that's what first got me thinking, you know, if I can make this much, have this much of an impact through the courts, wow, imagine the kind of impact I can have in the mayor's office. And so it's that spirit of wanting to make a difference that said, I'm willing to put, put up with some of the silliness of politics. And I ran, I got elected. And I tell you, it's been an absolute privilege to serve for the last six and a half years. And um, it's, it's just an experience that I've enjoyed through and through, you know, every moment of the day. So wonderful. And you are in your second term, as you mentioned. Any thoughts about what comes next for you? So I'm term limited. And so if I could, I would run for mayor one more term. I think that 12 years would be just about right. But unfortunately, I can't. But I do think I, I have one more, one more race in me. So you know, I can't run here at the city level, but you know, we're looking to, to move up. You know, we'll be making an announcement on that in the next uh, couple of months or so. That sounds great. Well, Mayor Lords, it was really wonderful to talk to you. And thank you so much for all the work that you've done in Providence. And uh, it's this really critical time for our country, as we've talked about. This is a, a once in a generation, once in a lifetime opportunity. And the, the strides you're making uh, for your folks and will continue to make it whatever you choose to do next are greatly appreciated. So thank you so much. Thank you, Debbie. It's been a pleasure being with you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.